Though many now advised Lucullus to suspend the war, he paid no heed to them, but threw his army into King Mithridates' country by way of Bithynia and Galatia. At first he lacked the necessary supplies, so that 30,000 Galatians followed in his train, each carrying a bushel of grain upon his shoulders. But as he advanced and mastered everything, he found himself in the midst of such plenty that an ox sold in his camp for a drachma and a man-slave for four, while other booty had no value at all. Some abandoned it, and some destroyed it. There was no selling anything to anybody when all had such an abundance. Welcome back to The Cost of Glory. This is Alex Petkus, your host. That was a passage from Plutarch's Life of Lucullus. Lucullus is saying no to the doubters, and he's taking the battle straight to the enemy. In this episode, we present more highlights from that book, from Plutarch's Life of Lucullus. We'll tell the story of how Lucullus started a new leg of the war and found himself fighting not one, but two of the Near East's greatest kings in several generations, and how he managed to pull off a victory that shocked the world at the Battle of Tigranokert. On top of that, barbarian queens, a cameo from the philosopher Antiochus of Ascalon, much, much more, all in this episode. Before we get any further, please take the time to consider this edifying message brought to you by our sponsors. Here's something special about Lucullus. I've talked before how many Romans of the late Republic used learning a classical language to magnify their power as persuaders and orators. Cicero wrote about how important it was for him to learn Greek in order to perfect his Roman oratory skills, his Latin skills, that is. Lucullus did this too, as we'll see. Learning another ancient language with an amazing literary tradition was important for Lucullus, for Cicero, and for countless other Romans, both as a training for thinking better and as a tool for being able to write better with more flexibility and power and persuasiveness. Great English writers have done this too with both Greek and Latin. And what Cicero and Lucullus both did was hire private tutors to make sure they made the quickest progress possible. And actually, they had the same tutor, Antiochus of Ascalon, for Greek philosophy, which I think is fascinating. So everyone on the internet that I talk to now seems to know that a private tutor is by far the best way to learn. Well, our sponsor and fellow Cost of Glory fanboys, the guys at the Ancient Language Institute, offer private tutoring in Greek and Latin. Their tutors generally follow their own unique, very well-thought-out curriculum, but they also tailor it to your specific needs, and you can start anytime. They offer Greek, Latin, Old English, and Hebrew. Old English and Hebrew, I'm told, are currently full, but Greek and Latin are available and better anyway, if you ask the host of The Cost of Glory his opinion. AncientLanguage.com is the main website, specific links in the show notes. Tell them I sent you if you go there. Thanks, Ancient Language Institute for your commitment to Roman greatness and for being fans of the cost of glory. So last time, we got a sense of Lucullus's intellectual gifts, his power of memory, which he trained, his ability to write well. We also saw he, he trained his ability to think well. He took on his campaigns with him, this guy Antiochus of Ascalon, a famous Platonic philosopher. And you can see Lucullus being the calm force of reason in, I think, in his victory against Mithridates at the Battle of Cyzicus that we saw last time, which Lucullus won by careful analysis of Mithridates' logistical structure. He cut off supplies and he waited him out. He waited for the exact moment to strike. And then he annihilated Mithridates' army. And I think that this relates well to just a, a general facet of his character and it's also a principle that Robert Greene talks about in The 48 Laws of Power. And this is a quote from that book from Law 23, Concentrate Your Forces. Greene says, quote, The world is plagued by greater and greater division within countries, political groups, families, even individuals. We are all in a state of total distraction and diffusion, hardly able to keep our minds in one direction before we are pulled in a thousand others. The modern world's level of conflict is higher than ever, and we have internalized it in our own lives. The solution is a form of retreat inside ourselves, to the past, to more concentrated forms of thought and action. As Schopenhauer wrote, intellect 
is a magnitude of intensity, not a magnitude of extensity. Napoleon knew the value of concentrating your forces at the enemy's weakest spot. It was the secret of his success on the battlefield, but his willpower and his mind were equally modeled on this notion. End quote. Lucullus was really a master of concentration. So let's go on with the story. Well, Lucullus, after he defeats Mithridates at Cyzicus, he goes and he campaigns in the Pontus, which is the north coast of the peninsula of Asia Minor. It's also the hinterland, modern Turkey, um, you know, along the Black Sea. And I'm going to fast forward through most of the details of the campaign, but I do want to give you a, a zoom in on a couple of interesting episodes. So, so as the campaign is going on, he's having to deal with a lot of discontent from his soldiers and probably some of the junior officers too. And so here's the first passage I want to look at. Here's, here's Plutarch on what Lucullus is up against. His soldiers found fault with him because he brought all the cities over to him by peaceable measures. So he's not, you know, sieging every single one. He had not taken a single one by storm, they said, nor given them a chance to enrich themselves by plunder. Nay, they said, at this very moment we are leaving Amasos, a rich and prosperous city, which it would be no great matter to take if its siege were pressed. So they're sieging the city of Amasos. And we are following our general into the desert of the Tiberini and the Chaldeans. I think he means the Kali base there, a people that Xenophon met. To fight with Mithridates, we are taking the war into the desert, they say. But these grievances, not dreaming that they would bring the soldiers to such acts of madness as they afterwards performed, Lucullus overlooked and ignored. So you know, Lucullus has strategic objectives. He's sieging the city, but he decides that it's time to move on. Mithridates is nearby. He's going to capture a more important stronghold, whatever. You know, he's not going to let himself get distracted by the greed of his soldiers, which is good. And that's probably right strategically, but he doesn't even bother explaining himself the way Plutarch puts it. He doesn't really take their morale seriously. He personally doesn't need some morale boost to motivate him to do his duty, and maybe he just doesn't think that, that they should. Or, or maybe at least they needed more. So I, I think that's a fault there that Plutarch is kind of approaching him on. So moving on, he, here's another episode in the campaign, and I think it illustrates Lucullus's presence of mind, his calm clarity. Remember, I think this is something that he cultivated carefully, intentionally in a way, both by studying philosophy and I think also by doing that memory work that he was so praised for by Cicero when he was younger. In his book on deep work, Cal Newport talks about memory training and memory champions. And there's research into, you know, how much does memory training say, you know, for numbers, memorizing long strings of numbers, does that actually improve your math skills? Well, not really. But one thing that memory training really does do demonstrably is increase your powers of attention. So it's like a good thing for people who struggle with ADHD or ADD to do. And uh, so I think it increases your ability to concentrate. And I think that we see some of that training maybe in, in Lucullus's whole career, especially in this episode. So here's Plutarch. We are told that while some of the king's men were chasing a stag, Mithridates' men are chasing a stag, the Romans cut them off and confronted them, whereupon a skirmish followed with fresh accessions continually to either side. So it kind of escalates. At last, the king's men were victorious. Then the Romans in their camp, beholding the flight of their comrades, were in distress, and they ran in throngs to Lucullus, begging him to lead them and demanding the signal for battle. But he wishing them to learn how important in a dangerous struggle with the enemy is the visible presence of a prudent general, bade them keep quiet. So he tells them to wait and hold back. It's not the time yet. Then he went down into the plain by himself and confronting the foremost of the fugitives, bade them to stop and turn back with him. So he leaves some of his troops up on the hill that are wanting to kind of go down and do battle. And he goes down to the fleeing men and he encourages them himself and he turns those guys back. They obeyed, and the rest also wheeled about and formed into battle array, and in a short time routed the enemy and drove them to their camp. When he came back, however, Lucullus inflicted the customary disgrace upon the fugitives. 
He bade them dig a 12-foot ditch, working in ungirt blouses, while the rest of the soldiers stood by and watched them. So I think that part also shows Lucullus's disciplinary style. Washington said, discipline is the soul of an army. Lucullus very much would have agreed with him there. And, uh, you know, it seems kind of harsh after he's showed these men to be brave. He makes them go dig a ditch and sort of like wearing dresses. I mean, they're ungirt blouses. I think the implication is they're kind of sloppy and maybe effeminate looking as they're digging this trench and it's embarrassing. But, you know, if you think about what Crassus did right around this time, decimation, you know, killing every 10th man in the army, I think this was, you know, not that harsh or cruel, actually. But still, you know, he was a, a hard commander. He was a, he was a disciplinarian. The next episode I want to look at is this amazing scene where Lucullus comes very close to getting killed himself personally, and he's saved in a very unlikely way. So here's the story. In the camp of Mithridates, there was a Dandarian prince named Olfacus. The Dandarians are a tribe of barbarians dwelling about Lake Myotis, which is basically, it's the Sea of Azov, so that's, they're from the Crimea region. Ukrainians, let's say. Moving on to this guy, Olfacus, a man conspicuous as a soldier for qualities of strength and boldness, of a most excellent judgment, and with that affable in address and of insinuating manners. So he's a charming guy. This man was always an emulous rivalry for the precedence with a fellow prince of his tribe, and so was led to undertake a great exploit for Mithridates, namely the murder of Lucullus. King Mithridates approved of this design and purposely inflicted upon him sundry marks of disgrace, various marks of disgrace. I don't know, he roughs up his hair and punches him or something. Whereupon, pretending to be enraged, Olfacus galloped off to Lucullus, who gladly welcomed him since there was much talk of him in the camp. So the Romans know who this guy is. He's got a reputation and he's pretending that he was just, you know, grievously insulted by Mithridates. After a short probation, Lucullus was so pleased with his shrewdness and zeal that he made him a table companion and at last a member of his council. It's kind of amazing. When the Dandarian thought his opportunity had come, he ordered his slaves to lead his horse outside the camp, while he himself, at midday, when the soldiers were lying around enjoying their rest, went to the general's tent. He thought no one would deny entrance to a man who was an intimate of the general, and he said he brought him certain messages of great importance, and he would have entered without any hindrance had not sleep, the destroyer of many generals, saved Lucullus. For it chanced that he was asleep, and Menedemus, one of his chamberlains who stood at the tent door, told Olfacus that he had come at an inopportune time since Lucullus had just betaken himself to rest after his long watching and many hardships. So Olfacus finds Lucullus basically taking a, an afternoon catnap. Olfacus did not retire at the bidding of Menedemus, but declared that even in spite of him, he would go in since he wished to confer with the general on urgent business of great importance. So he kind of insists and he starts shoving his way. And then Menedemus got angry, declared that nothing was more important than the health of Lucullus. And he pushed the man away with both hands. Then Olfacus, in fear, left the camp, took horse, and rode off to the camp of Mithridates without effecting his purpose. Amazing. So he was saved by his catnap. And I was hanging out recently with Brian Johnson, who's got the number one sleep score in the world, and he's also a fan of the podcast. I thought he would appreciate this story. Nothing is more important than the health of Lucullus, his guard said. You know, nothing is more important than Lucullus's nap right now. <laughs> That's a well-trained guard, right? But there is a lesson there, too, about this guy, Olfacus. You know, you should always be on your guard against people who used to be your enemies or who were working for your enemies. You know, not that such people can't change their minds, but, you know, you should be realistic about human nature and think about, you know, what other things somebody might have up their sleeve. All right, moving on here. Another near miss in a different direction. And it makes you think, how would history have gone differently if this scene had played out otherwise? 
So they're fighting Mithridates, and Mithridates' camp gets they, – they, they take Mithridates' camp kind of by surprise, and Mithridates is there. So Plutarch says, Mithridates himself, with no attendant or groom to assist him, fled away from the camp in the midst of the throng, not even provided with one of the royal horses. But at last the eunuch Ptolemaeus, who was mounted, spied him as he was borne along in the torrent of the rout, leaped down from his horse and gave it to the king. Presently the Romans who were forcing the pursuit were hard upon him, hard upon Mithridates, and it was for no lack of speed that they did not take him. Indeed, they were very near doing so. But greed and petty soldiers' avarice snatched from them the quarry which they had so long pursued in many struggles and great dangers and robbed Lucullus of the victor's prize, for the horse which carried the king was just within reach of his pursuers when one of the mules which carried the royal gold came between him and them, either of its own accord or because the king purposely sent him, this donkey, into the path of pursuit, you know, as a decoy. The soldiers fell to plundering and collecting the gold, fought with one another over it, and so were left behind in the chase. Wow. Nor was this the only fruit of their greed which Lucullus reaped. Bad fruit, that is. He had given orders that Callistratus, who was in charge of the king's private papers, should be brought alive to him. Obviously, this guy would be an extremely valuable source of information. But his conductors, finding that he had 500 pieces of gold in his girdle, slew him. So they killed Mithridates' spy master, maybe, or, you know, maybe his chancellor for some gold. So bad soldiers, right? Well, somebody like Jocko Willink would say, uh, Whose fault is it if the soldiers act bad and make a mistake like this? It's the commanding officer's responsibility to train them better. And, you know, for all of Lucullus's discipline, you get the sense that maybe these soldiers didn't have their heart fully in doing a good job, achieving the objective for its own sake. I mean, maybe he would counter that they'd already been spoiled for many years under Fimbria and other weak officers that flattered and spoiled them. But either way, it's a tragic event because I mean, so much war and bloodshed could have been spared if it had just ended there, if they had captured Mithridates, ended the war with, with that. So Lucullus doesn't capture Mithridates, but he does capture this stronghold at a place called Cabira. And after that, basically, the war for Pontus, Rome's conquest of Pontus is pretty much over. Mithridates personally escapes, unfortunately, but Lucullus is in charge of Pontic region militarily, and he sends to the Senate to add this territory of Pontus as a new province. And so Pontus is fallen. Here's what Plutarch says about what Lucullus finds in Cabira, and also about what happens in the aftermath of this capture of Mithridates' kingdom. In capturing Cabira and most of the other strongholds, Lucullus found great treasures and many prisons in which many Greeks and many kinsfolk of the king were confined. As they had long been given up for dead, it was not so much a rescue as it was a resurrection and a sort of second birth for which they were indebted to the favor of Lucullus. Nyssa, a sister of Mithridates, was also captured, and her capture was her salvation but the sisters and wives of the king who were thought to be at the farthest removed from danger and quietly hidden away in Pharnakia perished pitifully since Mithridates paused long enough in his flight to send Bacchides, a eunuch, to effect their death. So, pausing here. This is kind of a gruesome tale we're about to get to. Mithridates orders his harem, basically, his his female family members, both of blood and by marriage, to be executed. Romans and Greeks would never do this sort of thing, so it's kind of fascinating for Plutarch. And I think it gives you an insight into what, say, the female versions of some of these great men, like Mithridates, what their, their counterparts were like. But, you know, if you, if you get easily disturbed, just a warning. It's, it's a little gruesome. It's, it's not a story without some benefit, though. So here we go. Among these 
many other women. There were two sisters of the king, Roxana and Statira, about 40 years old and unmarried, and two of his wives of Ionian families. These are the women at Pharnakia who are about to meet their fate. Berenike is one of his wives from Chios and Monime, a Milesian. So these are Greek wives. The latter, Monime, was most talked of among the Greeks to the effect that though the king tempted her virtue, this is a story about her, he tempted her virtue and sent her 15,000 pieces of gold, she resisted his advances until he entered into a marriage contract with her and sent her a diadem and greeted her with the title of queen. So he keeps trying to woo this woman on, on his own terms, and she says, nope, not until you put a ring on my, or a crown on my head, rather. And I think for the ladies, that's a lesson of the benefit of not saying yes to the very first offer, even if it is the right buyer, if you know what I mean. Although maybe you'd say that Mithridates wasn't the right buyer after all, considering what happened next. It's going on here. But her marriage had been an unhappy one, poor Mani May, and she bewailed that beauty which had procured for her a master instead of a husband, and a guard of barbarians instead of home and family, dwelling as she did far, far away from Greece, where the blessings for which she had hoped existed only in her dreams, while she was bereft of the real blessings to which she had been accustomed. And now Bacchides came and ordered them all to die in whatever manner each might deem easiest and most painless. That's Mithridates' eunuch. Monime snatched the diadem from her head. So Monime has this diadem, which is a crown, but it's a ribbon, really, that you see in some of these depictions of Hellenistic rulers. But it's, it's the insignia of her being a queen of Mithridates that he, that he wooed her with. Monime snatched the diadem from her head, fastened it round her neck, and hanged herself. But her halter quickly broke in two. O cursed garment, she cried, couldst thou not serve me even in this office? Then she spat upon it, hurled it from her, and offered her throat to Bacchides. But Berenike, taking a cup of poison, this is Mithridates' other wife, shared it with her mother, who stood at her side and begged for some, Together they drank it off, and the force of the poison sufficed for the weaker body, but it did not carry off Berenike herself, who had not drunk enough. As she was long in dying, and Bacchides was in a hurry, she was strangled. It is said also that of the unmarried sisters, one drank off her poison with many abusive imprecations on her brother, but that Statira did so without uttering a single reproachful or ungenerous word. She rather commended her brother, because when his own life was at hazard, he had not neglected them, but had taken measures to have them die in freedom and under no insults. Of course, these things gave pain to Lucullus, who was naturally of a gentle and humane disposition. So there's one for the poets. And it's a tragedy, but I think it reflects not just horrified fascination here, but even a sort of admiration, at least with the case of a couple of them, uh, you know, from somebody like Plutarch, you know, and maybe his more, let's say, civilized Greek and Roman audiences. But you see this a lot, you know, something like Statira not uttering a single reproachful, ungenerous word, you know, thanking her executioner in a way for helping them die in freedom. I mean, these women are often portrayed as, these kinds of women are often portrayed as being just as intolerant to servitude as their husbands and brothers are, which I think is interesting. But it's certainly not meant to reflect well on Mithridates. And that happened at Pharnakia, which is on the coast. And the more common name for it is Kerasus. It was 
temporarily called Pharnakia after one of its leaders for a while, but Kerasus means more or less in Greek, place of the cherries. And Lucullus, according to Pliny the Elder, was the man who introduced the cherry fruit to Western Europe. The cherry was a very important indigenous crop in this region, but it was, it was unknown in Italy until Lucullus. So after this, Lucullus gets to some peacetime work, administering the province of Asia as its governor. The Senate also assigned him the province of Asia. At some point on this campaign, he was originally assigned Cilicia, but he's got Asia too. And Asia, the Roman province, is just basically the west coast of Asia Minor along the Aegean Sea. So here's one of the passages that has gone down in history in Lucullus's favor portraying him as a fundamentally good and just man. Lucullus now turned his attention to the cities in Asia in order that, while he was at leisure from military enterprises, he might do something for the furtherance of justice and law. Through long lack of these, justice and law that is, unspeakable and incredible misfortunes were rife in the province, its people were plundered and reduced to slavery by the tax gatherers and money lenders. The Romans, that is. Families were forced to sell their comely sons and virgin daughters and cities their votive offerings, pictures, and sacred statues. At last, men had to surrender to their creditors and serve them as slaves. But what preceded this was far worse. Tortures of rope, barrier, and horse— standing under the open sky in the blazing sun of summer and in the winter being thrust into mud or ice, slavery seemed by comparison to be disburdenment and peace. Such were the evils which Lucullus found in the cities, and in a short time he freed the oppressed from all of them. Roman governors and Roman officials could be very ridiculously harsh sometimes. We have documented cases of this. And what's basically going on is Sulla, when he won the first Mithridatic War, imposed this massive indemnity upon the peoples of this province to pay off the war debt, basically. But they didn't have any cash or not enough cash. And what, what would often happen is the Roman businessmen would come in, the equestrians, who were also the tax farmers, and they would say, look, you know, you guys owe 10,000 talents, but uh, obviously you don't have cash. We can help you out. We'll pay off the indemnity for you, but you'll owe us the debt and we'll charge you whatever interest rate we like. And they would charge them exorbitant interest rates and they could really do, do nothing about it. And so here's what happens. And, and here's how Lucullus corrects it. In the first place, he ordered that the monthly rate of interest should be reckoned at 1%. And no more. So he sets a limit at basically 12% per annum, which is not low by our standards, right? In the second place, he cut off all interest that exceeded the principal. So if you owed 500 talents in principal, you could not owe ever more than 500 additional talents of interest. Third, and most important at all, he ordained that the lender should not receive more than the fourth part of his debtor's income so that he puts a limit on how much money they can collect at once from any debtor. And any lender, very importantly here, I think this is the most important clause, any lender who added interest to principal was deprived of the whole. Added interest to principal. That means anybody who compounded interest basically, you know, the principle being the amount upon which interest accrues. So some of these people are paying whatever exorbitant interest rate, I don't know, 20% on two or three times the original amount. And it's, it's just completely unsustainable. So he, he basically outlaws compound interest, which seems fair in these circumstances in the case of this kind of debt. Thus, in less than four years' time, the debts were all paid and the properties restored to their owners un unencumbered. This public debt had its origin in the 20,000 talents which Sulla had laid upon Asia as a contribution, and twice this amount had been paid back to the moneylenders. Yet now, by reckoning usurious interest, 
They had brought the total debt up to 120,000 talents, six times the original amount. Incredible. These men, accordingly, these equestrian businessmen, these publicans, considered themselves outraged and raised a clamor against Lucullus at Rome. And, you know, we do find cases where they might have been borrowing against that income stream, you know, so they, they might be levered up and really gotten screwed pretty hard. And so probably he ruined some men by cutting back on the debt here. Accordingly, they also bribed some of the tribunes to proceed against him, being men of great influence, who had got many of the active politicians into their debt. So these are really powerful business syndicates that Lucullus is messing with. I mean, this, this takes some... Uh, some chutzpah here. And remember, so this is the year probably 70. He, he makes this mention, Plutarch makes this mention of the tribunes. Crassus and Pompey, as consuls in the year 70, have just restored the tribunes. So the tribunes are a dangerous political force again, all of a sudden. While Lucullus was away, this all happened. So Lucullus was a a good man, a, a just man, fair in his administration of the provincials. He was beloved among Asia. But you know, doing that built up some bad blood with some powerful men in Rome. And that's sometimes the risk you run by being a just man. Now, throughout all this time, Mithridates has escaped. To where? To Armenia. Remember, his son-in-law is Tigranes the Great, the king of Armenia, who we'll get to in a moment. And so he, that's where he goes. But Mithridates, why not just let him go? Well, Mithridates isn't just one guy, right? He's got immense symbolic significance. On the one hand, he's got symbolic significance to the Romans. I mean, if you capture or kill him, you'll obviously get credit for winning the war. But Lucullus has got enough victories under his belt to have a triumph. It's not just that he's a token figurehead to the Romans. He's a real symbolic figurehead a kind of folk hero to the leading classes in the East who resent the rule of Rome precisely because of the abuses that Lucullus has only just started to correct that we just saw. And he's only one guy, right? You know, the Romans might come in with a new governor in the next year and things might go back to the old way for all these people know. So there's a lot of people who see Mithridates as his liberator figure. And I'll just read you a passage from the historian Gareth Sampson, whose book on these wars I like to put this all in perspective, and I'll put this book in the show notes. It's called Rome's Great Eastern War, if you want to read up on this war. And Sampson says, The king had never been reconciled to Roman rule in Asia Minor. For the last 20 years, he had presented himself as an opponent of the Roman expansion in the east, someone who always escaped defeat on the battlefield to remain a thorn in Rome's side. His continued freedom elevated him to a quasi-mythical figurehead of defiance to Rome. In practical terms, although he had lost the heartland of his empire, namely Pontus, he still possessed resources across the Black Sea, particularly in the Crimea, from which he could draw a fresh army in an attempt to recapture his kingdom. There was also the danger that he could raise fresh forces from the other powers of the Near and Middle East, namely the Armenian and Parthian empires." End quote. So Mithridates, even though he's lost his kingdom or the heartland of it, he's still dangerous. And now Tigranes is harboring him in his kingdom. So Lucullus sends an embassy to Tigranes. And Tigranes is actually on campaign. He's in Acre at this point, which is modern Akko in Israel. It's kind of amazing he's that far south. Akko is right next to Haifa in northern Israel. So he's very far south, besieging the cities of what was then Phoenicia. And here's Samson again on Tigranes to give you some sense of the man. Tigranes had used the two previous decades to transform the small Hellenistic state of Armenia into the preeminent power of the Near East, with an empire stretching from the Caspian to the Mediterranean, so basically from Azerbaijan to Syria, including you know, Armenia, eastern Turkey, some of northern Iraq. During this process, he annexed the second of the formerly great Hellenistic empires, that is the Seleucids, defeated his former overlords, the Parthian Empire, 
With the Seleucids annexed and the Parthians humbled, only two other empires lay in his path. To the south lay the rich but weak Ptolemaic Empire of Egypt, a Roman client, while to the west was Rome. And so I think that taking things from Tigrani's perspective is fascinating. Mithridates, he hoped, would keep Rome busy while he expanded his influence in the east, consolidated his rule. He builds basically the, the largest extent of the Armenian state ever happened right now under Tigranes in this period. And Tigranes doesn't really want to mess with Rome, but he doesn't want to give Mithridates up either. They're relatives now. And Lucullus, basically, he sends this ambassador and he basically demands that Tigranes give up Mithridates or face another war. The ambassador, by the way, is a man named Clodius that we met in the life of Crassus. This is the guy that goes on to be Cicero's nemesis um, later on. But Clodius is actually Lucullus's brother-in-law and it's a very interesting twist. We'll get to this fascinating character later. So Lucullus gives Tigranes an ultimatum. And you wonder, did Lucullus know who he was messing with? Here's another detail that Plutarch adds about Tigranes. Many were the kings who waited upon him and four, four kings whom he always had about him like attendants or bodyguards would run on foot by their master's side when he rode out clad in short blouses, and when he sat transacting business would stand by with their arms crossed. So he's got a lot of royal pomp around him, and, and moving on in this passage, Plutarch describes Appius, the ambassador. This is Appius Claudius, Appius Clodius, his reaction. Appius, however, was not frightened or astonished at all this pomp and show, but as soon as he obtained an audience, told the king plainly that he was come to take back Mithridates as an ornament due to the triumph of Lucullus, or else to declare war against Tigranes. Although Tigranes made every effort to listen to this speech with a cheerful countenance and a forced smile, he could not hide from the bystanders his irritation at the bold words of the young man. It must have been 25 years since he had listened to a free speech. That was the length of his reign, or rather of his wanton tyranny. However, he replied to Appius, to Clodius, that he would not surrender Mithridates, and that if the Romans began war, he would defend himself. End quote. War it is, then, so it seems. So, to kind of make it brief here, Lucullus gets some report, or he claims to get some report, that Mithridates and Tigranes are on the point of attacking a couple of places, Lycaonia and Cilicia, essentially Roman buffer states or provinces. And you know, some historians think that that might just be propaganda, that he was making things up to try to have an excuse to say it was a defensive war. But you know, it does make sense that now that Tigranes, after the embassy, realizes that he's become an enemy of Rome, that he might want to take the initiative. Well, before he can even get to it, though, Lucullus decides to move his own forces into attack position. And he, he makes this very fast, very bold attack right on the heart of Tigranes' kingdom. And this was not entirely popular with the troops. And it was also, you could argue, to, to make this aggressive attack, it was arguably a breach of Lucullus' mandate as governor and as proconsul. Here's what Plutarch says. He himself, with 12,000 footmen and less than 3,000 horse, set out for the second war. Lucullus seemed to be making a reckless attack, and one which admitted of no saving calculation, upon warlike nations, countless thousands of horsemen, in a boundless region surrounded by deep rivers and mountains covered with perpetual snow, his soldiers, therefore, who were none too well disciplined in any case, followed him reluctantly and rebelliously, while the popular tribunes at Rome raised an outcry against him. That's, you know, the domestic front, what, he, what he's facing back at home. These tribunes are calling out against him. And they accused him of seeking one war after another, although the city had no need of them, that he might be in perpetual command and never lay down his arms or cease enriching himself from the public dangers. And you can bet that he has equestrian businessmen prodding those tribunes 
to raise an outcry. And, you know, Lucullus has made some enemies, even among the Senate and the, the nobility at this point. 12,000 footmen and less than 3,000 horses, what Plutarch says. Another ancient source gives a more plausible figure, more like 20,000 footmen and a few thousand horse. But either way, that's not a whole lot, really. And uh, we'll see how many soldiers Tigranes has at his disposal in a second. But kind of amazingly, Tigranes is still at Acre when Lucullus attacks. He's besieging it. It was called Ptolemaeus back then, but it's Acre. So apparently Tigranes caught the news, but killed the messenger, the first messenger that came to tell him, which may or may not have happened. But it does happen sometimes, right? And uh, Plutarch's comment is apt here. He says, this only proves that it is not every man who can bear much unmixed wine. So whatever exactly happened, Tigranes didn't either didn't get the news because he didn't he plucked, stuffed his ears, so to speak, or he didn't act on it, he didn't take it seriously. And it's safe to say that he would have been much better off if he had taken it seriously, if he had been at his capital when Lucullus attacked. Uh, it's always important to listen to bad news and to pay attention to it when you have the chance. So, long story short, Lucullus crosses the Euphrates, he crosses the Tigris, and he gets to this wide plain that is in southwestern Armenia. And this is the plain or the valley in which Tigranes built his new glorious capital city. We'll hear about it in a second. It's got a palace and everything. It's called Tigranokert, which means built by Tigranes. It's kind of like Tigranopolis. It's in modern-day Turkey today. The, the valley is where Diyarbakir is. Uh, actually, the closest city to the ruins of Tigranokert is called Batman, which is spelled exactly like Batman. Uh, but this is where Tigranes keeps his harem, his royal ladies and many treasures, and it's a glorious you know, monument to the kingdom that he's built. Tigranes is like 70 years old. It's, it's crowning the achievement of his life. And so Lucullus starts besieging Tigranokert before Tigranes can get there. And Tigranes does send a couple of advanced guards to try to stop the Romans, to keep them off of his harem. Lucullus defeats these, and the siege begins. And here's how Plutarch describes Tigranokert. He kind of tells the story of it. There were in the city many Greeks who had been transplanted, like others, from Cilicia, and many barbarians who had suffered the same fate as the Greeks. These are peoples that basically Tigranes has uprooted and moved. Tens of thousands of people that he had uprooted and moved, resettled in his city. Common practice of great Near Eastern kings. Think of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. Adiabene, these are the people that Tigranes is God and Tigrano cared. Adiabene, Assyrians, Gordiani, those are the Cardukians from Xenophon's Anabasis. Cappadocians, whose native cities Tigranes had demolished and brought their inhabitants to dwell there under compulsion. The city was also full of wealth and votive offerings, since every private person and every prince vied with the king in contributing to its increase and adornment. And then Plutarch sets the stage here for the battle that's coming. And this is really Plutarch at his finest doing the kind of drum roll here. Therefore, Lucullus pressed the siege of the city with vigor in the belief that Tigranes would not endure it, but contrary to his better judgment and in anger would descend into the plains to offer battle. And in his belief, he was justified. Mithridates, indeed, both by messengers and letters, strongly urged the king, Tigranes, not to join battle, but to cut off the enemy's supplies with his cavalry. Taxiles also, who came from Mithridates, one of his officers, and joined the forces of Tigranes, earnestly begged the king to remain on the defensive and to avoid the invincible arms of the Romans. And at first, Tigranes gave considerate hearing to this advice, but when the Armenians and the Gordiani joined him with all their hosts, and the kings of the Medes and the Adiabeni came up with all their hosts, and many Arabs arrived from the Sea of Babylonia, which I guess is the Persian Gulf, and many Albanians from the Caspian Sea, 
together with Iberians who were the neighbors to the Albanians. These are not modern-day Albanian Albanians. Albania was basically Azerbaijan back then, totally unrelated apparently. And the Iberians are the are the Georgians. So the, the all of these people from the Caucasus, the Persian Gulf and Near East and when not a few of the peoples about the river Araxes, who are not subject to kings, had been induced by favors and gifts to come and join him. The river Araxes runs past Mount Ararat into the Caspian Sea in Azerbaijan today, about 50 miles south of Baku. When the banquets of the king and his councils as well were full of hopes and boldness and barbaric threats, then Taxiles ran the risk of being put to death when he opposed the plan of fighting, and Mithridates was thought to be diverting the king from a great success out of mere envy. Wherefore Tigranes would not even wait for him, lest he share in the glory too, but advanced with all his army, bitterly lamenting to his friends, it is said, that he was going to contend with Lucullus alone and not with all the Roman generals put together. So, it's great storytelling here. You, you can kind of sense what's about to happen. Uh, but, you know, I think that this is a good example of the difficulty of trusting advice, you know, when, when interests conflict. Uh, Mithridates is apparently telling Tigranes, don't, don't fight the Romans directly. There's a better way to do this. Mithridates is basically advising him, do what he did to me, Lucullus, gave me the runaround and uh, cut off my supplies and, and wore me down. And you could do that to him. His, his supply chains are extended and the Cappadocia and there's not that many of them. And uh, you've got this big army. Tigranes thinks, or people are whispering in his ear, ah, Mithridates is just envious. This is the power of competitive rivalry. Even with your friends and allies, it can, it can lead you astray. You will do the opposite of what someone advises you just for the pure fact that you think that they're interested in preventing you from reaching complete success. You think that they envy you, whereas maybe it's just you that envies them. And it's very hard to judge who's right. So maybe that's going on for Tigranes. Either way, he decides to fight Lucullus. And he's, he's coming up from the south. He's coming into the valley. Lucullus is already there. And Tigranes is, is trying to relieve the siege of the city somehow. And, and here's what Plutarch says about the army that Tigranes has put together that's bearing down on Lucullus right now. Remember, Lucullus only has like four legions, 20,000 men, maybe a few thousand horse. Quote, and his boldness was not altogether that of a madman, nor without good reason. When he saw so many nations and kings in his following, with phalanxes of heavy infantry and myriads of horsemen. For he was in command of 20,000 bowmen and slingers and 55,000 horsemen, of whom 17,000 were clad in mail, as Lucullus said in his letter to the Senate. Also of 150,000 infantry, some of whom were drawn up in cohorts and some in phalanxes, also of road makers, bridge builders, clearers of rivers, foresters, and ministers to the other needs of an army, to the number of 35,000. These latter being drawn up in the army behind the fighting men increased the apparent strength of the army. So uh, some of the figures here put Tigranes' army as as many as 250,000, which just sounds like they're kind of eating Lucullus's propaganda. Remember, you know, Plutarch said, this is what Lucullus said in his letter to the Senate. So, you know, maybe he was exaggerating a little bit. But a reliable source does say that Tigranes had a force of 80,000 men. So either way, everyone agrees that Lucullus is grossly outnumbered, at least four to one. And so what does Lucullus do? He's got this gigantic army bearing down on him. They're in their home territory. His supply lines are extended. Well, if he retreats to safety, which might be the wisest move, it's potentially the end of his career. You remember that there are people back in Rome waiting for him to fail, waiting to prosecute him, to punish him. The tribunes have been suborned by the equestrians probably. His, his enemies in Rome are going to pr prosecute him for exceeding his mandate. His psychology right now, I think, explains 
his actions in a way. He's thinking, either I win or I die trying. Because the alternative to dying gloriously here is the end of my career, probably. If I, if I don't have a victory to back up my administrative irregularity crossing into this border, opening up a new front of this war without the Senate's approval, even though it is technically pursuing the remainder of the war with Mithridates, I'll probably get exiled or something. All the same, it's an incredibly daring move he's about to pull here. And so as soon as he sees the army of Tigranes coming on the other side of the valley, kind of amazingly, he leaves a full 6,000 men in charge of the siege of the city, and then he takes the rest of them with him to go and move to a head-on attack against Tigranes himself and his massive army. Here's Plutarch setting up the battlefields. When he had encamped along the river in a great plain, he appeared utterly insignificant to Tigranes and supplied the king's flatterers with grounds for amusement. Some mocked at the Romans, and others, in pleasantry, cast lots for their spoil, while each of the generals and kings came forward and begged that the task of conquering them might be entrusted to himself alone, and that the king would sit by as a spectator. Then Tigranes, not wishing to be left entirely behind in this play of wit and scoffing, uttered that famous saying, If they are come as ambassadors, they are too many. And if as soldiers, too few. And so for the while they continued their sarcasms and jests. But at daybreak Lucullus led out his forces under arms. Now the barbarian army lay to the east of the river, but as the stream takes a turn to the west at the point where it was easiest to ford, and as Lucullus led his troops to the attack in that direction first and with speed, he seemed to be, Tigranes, retreating. So he called Taxiles, Tigranes calls Taxiles, Mithridates his general, and he says, with a laugh, don't you see that the invincible Roman hoplites are taking to flight? O king, said Taxiles, I could wish that some marvelous thing might fall to your good fortune. But when these men are merely on a march, they do not put on shining raiment, nor have they their shields polished and their helmets uncovered as they do now that they have stripped the leathern coverings from their armor. Nay, this splendor means that they are going to fight and are now advancing upon their enemies. While Taxiles was yet speaking, the first eagle came into sight. These are the Roman standards. As Lucullus wheeled toward the river, and the cohorts were seen forming in maniples with a view to crossing. Then at last, as though coming out of a drunken stupor, Tigranes cried out two or three times, Are these men coming against us? And so with much tumult and confusion, his multitude formed in battle array, the king himself occupying the center and assigning the left wing to the king of the Adiabeni, the right to the king of the Medes. In front of this wing also, the greater part of the mail-clad horsemen were drawn up. He has those cataphracts, these, these full plate-mail horsemen, that we met in the life of Crassus. As Lucullus was about to cross the river, some of his officers advised him to beware of the day, which was one of the unlucky days that the Romans call the Black Days. For on that day, Caipio and his army perished in the great battle with the Cimbri. That was the Battle of Arausio in 105 BC from the life of Sertorius and Marius. But Lucullus answered with the memorable words, Verily, I will make this day, too, a lucky one for the Romans. And that day was the 6th of October. Saying this and bidding his men to be of good courage, he crossed the river and led the way in person against the enemy. So before we read this, this last passage here, I want to give you an overview of the battle. Basically, Lucullus is going to distract the front of the army with some of his troops, and then he personally is going to wheel around somehow without being noticed, and he's going to concentrate all of his forces on the weak point of the enemy, which is their cavalry on the right wing, and it's stationed at the foot of a hill where there at the base, cavalry can't really be effective going uphill very easily, and so he's going to charge them there from, this, from the height of the hill. He's going to take the hill. And remember that quote from earlier, 
from the 48 Laws of Power. As you're listening to the scene, and I'll just read it again here, Green says, We are all in a state of total distraction and diffusion, hardly able to keep our minds in one direction before we are pulled in a thousand others. The modern world's level of conflict is higher than ever, and we have internalized it in our own lives. The solution is a form of retreat inside ourselves to the past, to more concentrated forms of thought and action. As Schopenhauer wrote, intellect is a magnitude of intensity, not a magnitude of extensity. So here's the battle. Quote, Lucullus wore a steel breastplate of glittering scales and a tasseled cloak, and at once let his sword flash forth from its scabbard, indicating that they must forthwith come to close quarters with men who fought with long-range missiles and eliminate by the rapidity of their onset the space in which archery would be effective. But when he saw that the mail-clad horsemen on whom the greatest reliance was placed, the cataphracts, were stationed at the foot of a considerable hill which was crowned by a broad and level space, and that the approach to this was a matter of only four stadia, and neither rough nor steep. He ordered his Thracian and Gallic horsemen to attack the enemy in the flank, and to parry their long spears with their short swords. This is probably the distracting movement. Then he himself, with two cohorts, hastened eagerly towards the hill, his soldiers following with all their might, because they saw him ahead of them in armor, enduring all the fatigue of a foot soldier and pressing his way along. Arrived at the top and standing in the most conspicuous spot, he cried with a loud voice, The day is ours! The day is ours, my fellow soldiers. I'm reading from the lobe, but the Greek really literally says, We have won, Neni Kekamen, my fellow soldiers. With these words, he led his men against the mail-clad horsemen, ordering them not to hurl their javelins yet. So he's, he's leading them down the hill there. They're charging at full speed down the hill at these horsemen stationed there. But taking each his own man to smite the enemy's legs and thighs, which are the only exposed parts of the mail-clad horsemen. However, there was no need of this mode of fighting, for the enemy did not await the Romans, but with loud cries and a most disgraceful flight, they hurled themselves and their horses with all their weight upon the ranks of their own infantry, before it had so much as begun to fight. And so all those tens of thousands were defeated, without the infliction of a wound or the sight of blood. But the greater slaughter began at once when they fled, or rather tried to fly, for they were prevented from really doing so by the closeness and depth of their ranks. And so apparently something like this really did happen. They, they caused a kind of domino effect. These mail-clad heavy horsemen uh, that, that had no answer for the, the, the close-range assaults of these highly trained veteran Roman infantrymen charging them at a, at a great advantage because of the terrain. And it, it spins the whole army into confusion, and a slaughter begins. Tigranes himself flees the battlefield. He goes and takes refuge in a nearby fortress. His army is shattered. 20,000 killed, the rest dispersed in chaos. It's an amazing shock victory. And here's Plutarch. He quotes... Antiochus of Ascalon, Lucullus's philosopher friend who was there on that day. Antiochus the philosopher makes mention of this battle in his treatise concerning the gods. And he says that the sun never looked down upon such another. And Strabo, another philosopher in his historical commentaries, says that the Romans themselves were ashamed and laughed one another to scorn for requiring arms against such slaves. Livy also has remarked that the Romans were never in such inferior numbers when they faced an enemy, for the victors were hardly even a twentieth part of the vanquished, but less than this. That's, you know, he's following Lucullus's war report to the Senate, but uh, they were certainly at a disadvantage. The Roman generals, who were most capable and most experienced in war, praised Lucullus especially for this, and I think this is really interesting, that he outgeneraled two kings who were most distinguished and powerful by two most opposite tactics, speed and slowness. 
For he used up Mithridates at the height of his power by long delays, but crushed Tigranes by the speed of his operations, being one of the few generals of all time to use delay for greater achievement and boldness for greater safety. And that is how the incredibly versatile Lucullus, through the power of intellect, the concentration both of his mind and of his military forces, defeated an enemy who was vastly superior in muscle, in steel, and in reputation. And this really does happen in life. In battle, a massive army attacked very precisely with a combination of distraction and speed and extreme daring, of course, can be brought down by a vastly smaller one. And many things in life are like this. The big, slow, overconfident incumbent, you know, whether it's a country or a company or an entire industry, it sometimes falls to men of concentrated intellect. It's the story of so many of Napoleon's victories, also those of Alexander the Great, and Lucullus's mentor, Sulla, as well. And you know that Lucullus was thinking about Sulla on that day. But Mithridates and Tigranes are still alive, and they still have vast resources at their disposal. And Lucullus's war is not over. We'll leave it there. Many more adventures and lessons next time in the concluding episode of these highlights from the life of Lucullus. If you enjoyed this, tell a friend. That's the main way that people find out about this show. Or write to me. Let me know what you think. Also, if you like the show and your hands are free, pause it. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform you're using. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.